0: This is Hell.
1: What Canada calls British Columbia is actually home to the Wet'suwet'en people. As this morning's guests remind us, the Wet'suwet'en have lived there since time immemorial and never ceded or surrendered their territory to Canada, the Crown, or anyone. They governed the community and stewardship of the land by Wet'suwet'en law, and that law has now commanded them to reoccupy their traditional lands in response to a proposed liquefied natural gas pipeline that would go right through their territory, endanger an aquifer that they depend upon, and be devastating to cultural sites in the land to which they are connected to spiritually. We'll be reminded how colonialism never ended and continues to be practiced to this very day when we speak with writer and activist Suzanne Dollywall, who is the author of the Red Pepper article, All Eyes on Wet'suwet'en. Suzanne will be joined by Lindsay Basigal. She is Communications Director for Indigenous Climate Action Network, a global campaign working in solidarity with Indigenous peoples to keep tar sands in the ground. You can find out more about UK Tar Sands Network at no notarsands.org. That's hyphens between each word, so no-tar-sands.org. Follow them on Twitter at Notar Sands. Indigenous Climate Action is Canada's premier Indigenous-led climate justice organization. ICA is an Indigenous-led organization working to inspire and support sovereign Indigenous-led climate action. You can follow ICA on Twitter at indigenous underscore C-A. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell?
0: This week's question from hell is, what can I say to put you in this cult today? What can I say to put you in this cult Today.
1: The person with our favorite answer to this Week's question mail gets our new gray black This is hell truckers cap. You can check it out right now At our website thisishell.com when you click On support. You can leave your answer to this week's question Mail at our Facebook page facebook.com Slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio Email it to either of us Chuck at thisishell.com or Alex at thisishell.com but we must Have your answer by the End of this week's show or end of today's Show when we are announcing this week's winner Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth this week during the moment of truth, Jeff peddles a fancy new psychosis, and I need a fancy new psychosis. So I want to preemptively thank Jeff Dorchin for offering us one. Following our guest, Alex, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. What can I say to get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you in this cult today? Alex, what are you up to this weekend? Any plans?
0: Yeah, I'm trying to track down a cheap Spring Earl or a Spring Earl pan. Or those little molds to make spring roll, those like uh oh yeah, Anna's cookies yeah yeah. Uh, my wife and I are entering a cookie competition against each other for Christmas cookies, and I'm going Jordan ninety seven on this one. I'm taking no prisoners.
1: I have one of those uh, rolling pins that makes those. Oh, and I'll hit you up for it. And I uh, we made it once and. Uh, I was not crazy about those cookies.
0: Yeah, because it has anise seeds, which ruins everything. Well, no, I didn't mind that. It was just too much anise. seed. It
1: was just like way too much. Speaking of cooking, this weekend, all right, so what, <laughs> Laura and I are doing this new thing where we put a ton of recipes into a container, and then you randomly select one, and you select one on Sunday night, and then the next week, by the next weekend, you have to cook that
0: meal. Oh, that's a good idea.
1: So uh, I got slow-cooked barbecue pulled pork. And one of the ingredients is, uh, it said you can either use a cherry cola, a cola, a root beer, or a birch beer. And I figure birch beer is going to be the least sweet of those. Don't you think that would be the case?
0: Corn syrup all the way down on those, man.
1: I know. That's, that's, I don't want to have any corn syrup in there. I'm trying to figure out how I can get like a sugar-based, non-corn syrup birch beer somewhere. I know Sioux City makes one. I know Bindenberg makes one. I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do that. Just don't know have no clue uh, My girly The recipe she pulled out was <laughs> Meatball toad in the hole <sighs> I don't know if we're going to be having that this weekend Your eyewitness to grief This is hell We got a couple emails sent to Chuck at com Since yesterday's show That we want to share before we get to today's guests As well as Jeff in the moment of truth Yesterday we spoke with Abram Lustgarten Who wrote the ProPublica piece That was the front page article In last Sunday's New York Times magazine About climate change Forcing a new migration On residents of the United States Immediately after that conversation We got this email from Jason Who writes from "quote My little slice of Southern California Circle of Inferno I'm ready to tell you how much I enjoy your show, the guests' topics of conversation and music selection, extra props to the Silver Jew's spots, and extra, extra props on your use of the falls. Excellent. Hit the North, one of that band's most excellent middle period tracks. All of those hat tips go directly to Alex. I was wondering... Uh, Jason writes, I was wondering if you've ever tried to get the notorious William T. Volman as a guest. He covered so many of your topics in his long and extraordinary career as an embedded journalist, and his mammoth opus, Rising Up and Rising Down, makes for some compelling pandemic reading, if you can afford it, or even if you can lift it, which I don't recommend if you're still pursuing, or sorry, if you're still nursing your tennis elbow. It's a real tendon strainer. Anyway, best wishes to you, good gents. I really dig your show's political and social analysis and your inimitable style. Respectfully yours, Jason. First, Jason, I am nearly 100% certain we have had William T. Volman on the show, and I think it was for an article he had written for Harper's. So Alex and I are going to go look through the archives to see if William T. Volman was actually on the show And if we can find that interview with William T. Volman, that will be our Interview we will be sharing on Patreon Tomorrow during our weekly Friday Patreon-only podcast, which you can only Hear by subscribing at patreon.com Slash Hell. I went to Harper's site to see if uh, Any article jogged my memory Nothing did, but I was reminded that the FBI suspected William T. Volman of being the Unabomber at one time, and William wrote about it uh, as what life was like as a suspected ter- terrorist at a Harper's. Now, if we did have William on the show, it was likely before it came out that he was suspected of being the Unabomber, because I don't remember asking William T. Volman about being suspected of being the Unabomber, and I'm starting to wonder if we did interview William, and if that interview made it maybe into his FBI file? Jason, we'll check on if we have done an interview with William. And if we did, it will be our conversation we're sharing on Patreon tomorrow. We also got an email from Daniel who writes with a confession. Dear hell, I have been voting for 12 years now and not once have I ever done any research on a judicial election. Alright, that's not entirely true But the reality is even more shameful I follow the party line Voting to retain judges appointed by non-Republicans And to throw out the rest It feels so good when I do it But then I wake up the next day feeling dirty and uninformed I know I've been bad And I don't know how to fix it I tried to turn my life around in 2020 When the COVID dividend hit And I had more time for research I have done some research I've done some searching through case databases Local newspapers and national advocacy groups But they seem almost as useless as the Democratic Party in guiding my decisions Maybe I'm just a bad voter Well, now you know my secret I'd appreciate it if anyone could point me to resources to help me identify state and local judges on the left And of the local political spectrum throughout the U.S., especially in Indiana Which is where I'm guessing Daniel is writing from I'm especially interested in the following advocacy organizations that make endorsements Journalistic organizations focusing on local courts Sources that help me quickly identify state and local cases that were impactful, highly cited, or narrowly decided Thanks, Daniel Listeners You always come through with this kind of stuff. It's not only Daniel that needs your help. We get these emails almost every year right around election time, and I never have an adequate answer because, honestly, I don't know where you can get this information either, which says something about our democracy. Last time uh, we voted for judges, someone did a whole bunch of research and then gave me a, a list of judges to support. I can't remember who gave me the list, why they gave me the list, And I lost it before I went to go vote So yeah, if anyone can give me, Daniel, and all the people wanting to be more informed when voting for judges For me in Illinois, for Daniel in Indiana, and for everybody across the United States We would really, really appreciate it Email us your resource for determining what judges to support in the upcoming election At chuck at thisishell.com Chuck at com. Jacob is interested in working on This Is Hell. If you have been listening over the past couple of weeks, you may have heard our call, call out for volunteers to join us here on This Is Hell as board operators, as Alex is needed at home for child care during a pandemic that is keeping his kid from going to daycare and preschool. We also mentioned uh, that we will also soon be looking for people who can work on the show in other capacities. Where they do not have to physically be here in studio with us And therefore do not have to live in the Chicago area And Jacob writes, hi Chuck, greetings from Portland, Oregon Thanks for hosting my favorite podcast I want to help out This Is Hell remotely I'd love to support This Is Hell in any way possible So reach out with any need, and I am on it Thanks for all you do, and Alex, of course Now, how do I get my semi-religious mom to listen to you? Damn neoliberal parents Keep it up Jacob Jacob if you want to contribute to This Is Hell from afar And if anybody wants to like Jacob does Email us at at chuckatthisishell.com And we'll be getting in touch with you shortly About how you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell Jacob as far as getting your semi-religious mom And neoliberal parents to listen to This Is Hell We do have a flash drive at thisishell.com When you click on support That is a history of the 21st century so far As it has been reported here on This Is Hell so maybe that's a good way to get your parents Introduced to this is hell As for your mom being semi-religious I had no idea that there was a religion That deifies tractor trailers That is unless I'm not understanding what you mean By semi-religious Finally we got an email that is part of my Inspiration for the monologue I will be delivering On tomorrow's Patreon podcast Again at patreon.com slash this is hell Stephen sent us an image And he attached this note Hey boys saw this on my way home from work today And thought you would enjoy it the image is a picture of a Trump-Pence yard sign That is surrounded by a fence With warnings that there are security cameras in use Protecting the sign That it is private property And the fence is electric Steven adds I hope this I hope his electric skills Are better than his spelling Zoom in on the middle sign Sure enough, the middle sign says warning And then scrawled underneath is Electic fence But, electric kind of sounded like a word to me, so I looked it up, and at a site called definition.org, which claimed to have a definition of electric, it did not have a definition, but it did offer this sample for how to use electric in a sentence. That sample sentence is, The target goal is to be able to have an actual manufacturing industry capable of producing all those goddamn electric cars we need. In other words, no, electic is not a word Trump supporters are oddly really bad at spelling, sentence structure, and grammar And I was inspired to write tomorrow's Patreon monologue about election signs and bumper stickers And lo and behold, I get the small town newspaper someone gave me as a gift subscription And one of the letters to the editor is about just that, election signs But you can only hear me go off on the stupidity of it all and maybe actually figure out what they're really about by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, indigenous people living in what is known as Canada are reoccupying the land that was stolen from them. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff peddles a fancy new psychosis, and I could use one. Alex will have more of your answers To this week's question from hell Which is what can I say to get you in this cult today What can I say to get you in this cult today The person with our favorite answer to this week's question Wins our new grey on black This is hell trucker's cap Which you can see right now By going to thisishell.com and clicking on support You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell At our Facebook page You can tweet it to us, you can email it to us But we have to have your answer to this week's question from hell By the end of the show today When we are announcing this week's winner like we said yesterday, and it's still appropriate today, the planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. the Wet'suwet'en people have lived in what Canada calls British Columbia now since, well... Forever And have never ceded or surrendered their territory to anybody The United Nations recognizes it as their land International law supports their case Yet Canada continues to sell licenses and leases to extractivist corporations to take natural resources While destroying the land that the Wet'suwet'en are connected to spiritually Here to help us understand the abuse of indigenous rights currently taking place Up north, writer and activist Suzanne Dhaliwal is author of the Red Pepper article, All Eyes on Wet'suwet'en. Welcome to This Is Hell, Suzanne. Hiya. Suzanne is joined by Lindsay Basagal. She is uh, communications director for Indigenous Climate Action, which you can find out more about in indigenousclimateaction.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Lindsay.
2: Chokma, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for being on our show. Uh, I saw that you're from Owasso, Michigan. I know that area very well, up by Alpina Oscoda, correct?
2: Uh no, we're actually down south, more like around the Flint area.
1: Oh really? I was I always knew it was over there by the you know index finger of the <laughs> mitten, but I could never I was yeah. never really certain yeah, where it was. Right. Over by Pinkaning.
2: Uh yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Suzanne, let's start with you and your article. You write a global movement has emerged to stand in solidarity with the struggle of indigenous peoples fighting to protect Wet'suwet'en territory from the construction of a 670 kilometer hydro fracturing fracking gas pipeline. Yesterday, Suzanne, the Tai Tai.ca reported. Uh, actually, on Monday, more than 200 Facebook users have been blocked from posting or sending messages through the popular social media platform after what appears to be a targeted attack on those supporting an anti pipeline protest in northern British Columbia. The suspensions temporarily disabled the personal accounts of people with posting privileges on 18 different Facebook pages belonging to environmental and indig- indigenous rights organizations. The pages had all shared information on an online rally in May in support of Wet'suwet'en Nation members who oppose the Coastal GasLink natural gas pipeline through their territory. A similar rally was scheduled for Monday but has been postponed. Facebook's restrictions also affected users' ability to communicate on the platform's associated messenger app. You cannot know what others' motivations are, but Suzanne, why do you think those supporting Wet'suwet'en Nation and in opposition to the Coastal GasLink natural gas pipeline would be targeted, prohibited from using the social media platform. Why? Why would that be seen as something that shouldn't be posted on Facebook? Maybe as too political.
3: Yeah. Um, well, I think it's really important that we put this um, resistance that's happening here into context as well. There's been, you know, in the past decade, a lot of international solidarity um, to call to attention the violation of indigenous rights. Um, with this pipeline, but also the tar sands, which is happening in Alberta. Um, and one of the most powerful strategies that we've used is international solidarity, is you know taking action in the UK to expose not just the Canadian government, but the financial and corporate ties to extractivist projects, which are violating indigenous rights. So as you mentioned, yeah, you know, when we saw images of the RCMP invading traditional indigenous territory in the UK, it reignited a movement of solidarity. So obviously, you know, Facebook, um, we all know, is in bed with um, financiers and corporations that are pushing the climate catastrophe. So it, this happens regularly, um, you know, if you try and talk about water rights, uh, indigenous rights, you often get your content blocked on Facebook.
1: Which is really, yeah, it, it really is amazing. And just Lindsay, just to follow up on that. So what does that say to you about Facebook as an organizing tool, especially when it comes to indigenous organizing?
2: Yeah, it's definitely uh, really difficult for us to really, you know, have platforms and spaces where we feel like it is a safe space for us, and Facebook is really showing, as well as you know, all of these other social media groups as well, that these aren't spaces that we're able to organize on, that we don't have our own data sovereignty, uh, that we have to worry about our security as well. Um, and I think Facebook also with this really showed as to who it is that they who it is that they support at the end of the day, and it's not frontline grassroots folks. Um, Despite what Facebook might say, um, it's definitely these big corporations that are in support um, and that are the ones that are destroying our lands and, and impeding on our sovereignty.
1: Suzanne, how necessary is the coastal gas link natural gas pipeline for Canada's energy needs? Is this supply meeting demand? Is the problem not the pipeline? Uh, but Canadian energy consumption, because any time a uh, pipeline is being built and there is opposition toward it, many in the industry just say, well, we wouldn't be doing this if you weren't the people who were consuming the energy. It's it's not our fault that you're consuming our energy. So to what degree does Canada, do Canadians actually need the coastal gas link natural gas, gas pipeline?
3: Yeah, that's part of the crackpot logic of the Canadian government. Um, this fracked gas isn't even going to be consumed within Canada. It's been, um, you know, the reason why it's it's being shipped on a pipeline is because it's headed towards Asian markets um, where it's going to be exported there. The reasoning is that, you know, in order to reduce consumption of coal in Asia, we'll export fracked gas. So that logic is completely upside down. And as we know, um, none of the resources or money that comes from these projects actually goes back into the Canadian public or, more importantly, back to Indigenous communities who lose their territory. So, you know, this argument of it being, you know, it would be way better to invest in renewable energy. Um, This is, like, dirty fuels that are just, you know, being shipped as well. So it also increases the risk of spills um, during shipping as well.
1: And there's other risks too uh, Lindsay, in the article that you collaborated on With uh, Suzanne uh, You write that if constructed The coastal gas link natural gas pipeline Will devastate traditional lands and waterways And cultural ways of life How is it a threat to waterways? Because on yesterday's show We were talking with Abram Lusgarten, Who posted the ProPublica New York Times Magazine Cover story on how climate change Will force a new American migration And Abram writes about the Aguilala Aquifer Already overdrawn by hundreds of millions of gallons a day Much of the Ogallala aquifer Which supplies nearly a third of the nations Of the United States irrigation groundwater Could be gone by the end of the century The Ogallala is also the aquifer in the U.S. Great Plains that You know, it irrigates much of the central U.S., what's called America's breadbasket, and U.S. agriculture boasts that it feeds the world, and it is being threatened by the Keystone XL pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline. That's what the Standing Rock protests were partly about, about protecting that aquifer. So what impact would the pipeline have, Lindsay, on on farming, on agriculture overall in Canada, and the ability for Canada to, you know, feed Canadians. To what degree is this a threat, not just to Indigenous people who live in the area, but to all of Canada?
2: Yeah, I think this really represents how all of all of these issues are connected. Um, so it's not even just that it would be poisoning our lands and our waters, which of course makes it difficult for, for crops, um, but it also, of course, affects the health of people as well in terms of, um, you know, it can lead to increases in birth defects. So there's also um, a very apparent effect on Indigenous women specifically um, as well. And then even thinking of as well the, the issue of man camps. So huge amounts of, of men being sent into Indigenous lands and territories, which often leads to increases in violence and sex trafficking and sexual violence as well. Uh, but even for, for the country as a whole, too. Um, so, of course, yes, it would have effects on agriculture and, um, you know, crops, drinking water, all of these different things. But we also have to think of all the migrants that we have in Canada as well, whose rights are also infringed upon here Um, So we have issues where they're also being exploited. So it really is showing that despite Canada's propaganda, if you will, um, of being this very just and equitable country, that there definitely is very much a a hierarchy in Canada as to who has rights and who does not.
1: Suzanne, let me just follow up on what Lindsay was saying. Uh, Why do these man camps, why do these resource extraction, extractivist uh, processes Why does it attract such violence toward the indigenous, such violence and violence towards locals, towards women? Why does it attract that? And why what what explains why the extraction companies aren't being held responsible for that violence?
3: Well, I think that goes back to the inception of colonialism and white supremacy um, and violence towards um, communities and, you know, the extractivist industrial complex is just a continuation of colonialism. It never really went away. It just changed its base and its instruments. So you know when we look at the way construction happens on these lands, if we start with the beginning, the premise of consent. Um, you know, indigenous communities, by law, by their inherent rights, are supposed to have, you know, in-depth, uh, free, prior, and informed consent about projects that go ahead on their territories. However, we see the Canadian government not engage in those processes appropriately, and um, continually fail to do that. So the projects themselves don't have consent. So if you look at that, the those who are hired to work there, um, this whole industry operates in a, a framework of colonial violence, of white supremacy, um, and of lack of consent. And, um, you know, we saw that when the pandemic hit, um, there were communities and frontline women asking for the the workers to leave Um, and the companies violated you know at that point global who recommendations about stopping construction continued with construction intimidated women Um, and often you know as I've I've seen in the tar sands there's nothing to do up there and you're pretty traumatized with this work Um, so there's a lot of drugs there's a lot of um, sexual violence that happens so not only does it bring environmental Catastrophe. It continues white supremacy and and that violence, which is you know the cornerstone of the foundation of modern Canada.
1: So, Lindsay, let's follow up on that idea of colonialism never ending. There is this idea. You are somebody of Indigenous descent. There is this idea, as you well know, amongst uh, white America, that colonialism has ended. That it is a thing of the past. That yes, it may cause problems in the present, but those are historical problems that did happen in the past. How do you think the world views the indigenous people differently when they, under, when they understand colonialism as a thing of the past that no longer continues?
2: Yeah, I definitely see that for many non-indigenous folks, they're very much is this idea as to Indigenous peoples having a place in history and not being people that still really exist um, or don't really, you know, don't participate in modern, quote-unquote, society. Um, so there really is this very narrow view as to what Indigenous peoples are, um, kind of this very stereotypical view of, like, you know, the Pocahontas, if you will, stereotype. Um, so there's not really an understanding that we're people that still exist, that both participate Um and more, you know, use modern technologies and whatnot, but also still practice our traditional ways of being and of doing. Uh, So it does definitely seem like the general public just has a very narrow view as to what Indigenous peoples are, and very much sees us as peoples that are, you know, placed in history. They don't really see them as people that still exist. Um, And I'll say that even as someone who kind of straddles the line of being both living and working in Canada, but being from the U S that, um, in Canada, there is very much this narrative of truth and reconciliation. So I would say that there's almost a bit of a, of a different viewing of indigenous peoples as almost, you know, still seeing them as being, uh, living peoples. But at the same time, um, I think that also means that in many cases that there's more harm done against indigenous peoples in some cases, um, because very much in Canada there are definitely people who see Indigenous protesters as infringing on their rights. So there are these lobster wars going on right now with the Mi'kmaq where they have had violence um, against them by lobster fishermen, non-Indigenous lobster fishermen, um, who believe that the fishing that the Mi'kmaq do for sustenance is not something that they should should be doing. Um, There's similar work happening as well. There's a moose moratorium that the Anishinaabe... In um, Quebec are also implementing themselves because the moose population has been declining so rapidly over the past few years, um, and the Quebec government is not doing anything about it. So the Anishinaabe are implementing their own moratorium where they're turning away hunters. Uh, so really, it's just showing that in many cases that there is just such a disrespect for indigenous rights and for indigenous peoples that are protecting the lands and the waters and the our non-human relatives as well
1: uh Suzanne Lindsay brought up the truth and reconciliation process and but it seems like as the as the collaborative writing states that that kind of process has been left for dead we have seen some success with truth and reconciliation or at least it has been you know, touted as being successful in places like post-apartheid South Africa. Why do you think this this truth and reconciliation process is uh, falling short of its potential and possibilities?
3: Yeah, um, and I can't speak exactly to the process itself, but in a wider context, I think, you know, it's because, again, it goes back to the founding of Canada and that, you know, however much... Um, is invested in these processes, however much um, is acknowledged on paper or in the media by um, the Trudeau government, it doesn't translate into the ongoing um, consent for communities, for new projects. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword while there's these processes continuing, um, you know, to address the trauma from residential schooling. Um, You know, that trauma continues today Um, as white supremacy um, increases, increased fascist violence. And as as Lindsay mentioned, those two fronts there. So, you know, we have to um, hold those who are going through those processes and understand that, you know, it's, because colonialism never ended as much as the reconciliation acknowledgement of the past is happening new trauma is happening it is important that through those processes canadians learn about the history um, of their country because you know often there's a kind of an amnesia about what's happening there so yeah i think what we need is now a mobilization of white allies, settler colonists, um, and and immigrants as well, standing alongside Indigenous communities when there are these calls for solidarity in these very concrete situations. And that's how we're going to forge, um, you know, reconciliation and solidarity in the future.
1: Lindsay, in the in the uh, Red Pepper article that I've been citing this morning. It states, Wet'suwet'en territory lies in what is known as British Columbia, Canada, but the Wet'suwet'en people, as I was stating earlier in the introduction, who have lived there since time immemorial, never ceded or surrendered their territory to the crown. They governed the community and stewardship of the land by Wet'suwet'en law and are currently reoccupying traditional lands. Lindsay, does Canada recognize that autonomy and independence? And if they don't, as I am certain they don't, why don't they? I mean, the international law says that they should be recognizing that autonomy and independence. Uh, the U.N. says they should be recognizing that autonomy and independence. Why aren't they held to account for not upholding the law?
2: Yeah, I like to say that Canada has a really good PR team, especially as someone from the States. And, you know, down here, um, I, I think a lot of us think that Canada is kind of this almost promised land of liberalism, of, you know, left wing ideas. Uh, but that is very much not the case. Um, Canada, it's almost like you know, still still racism and still discrimination and oppression, but kind of with with a smile. <laughs> so it's a little bit different up here. Um, so a lot of times, you know the government likes to tout truth and reconciliation and all these movements forward and look at all this you know this money and support that we're giving to indigenous peoples but really at the end of the day the government is still a colonial government Um, it still is very much concerned with corporations with with money um, and definitely puts that above indigenous rights and sovereignty and for the government as well it almost becomes a bit of a domino effect where if they were to say okay yes we recognize what sodans claims to their land that it would almost, you know, create kind of a a domino effect in which they would end up having to recognize all of these other land claims as well on unceded territories. So it would become a huge issue for the government. So I'm sure that is also uh, one of the main reasons that they don't want to do it, but also just that Canada doesn't want to give up all of these um, extractive industries either. Canada is very much a country that has built itself up on extraction. It gets so much money from extraction. Um, A lot of the country really bases its identity around the extraction industry. And so it's not something that the government is going to give up easily by any means. So that's why Indigenous folks are still just having to fight on the front lines for even the most minimal of things, like even the, you know, the sovereignty that we have, the, the rights that we have even in treaties for folks who have signed treaties. It's still things that we end up having to fight over, even though the government says, you know, Yes, we've, we've signed and ratified UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, and we've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've had the National Inquiry into Missing Women, Indigenous Women and Girls. So there are all these reports that are made, all of these recommendations that are made. So the government knows exactly what it needs to do in order to have a good working relationship with Indigenous peoples. But I don't see it how the government will ever actually do that because that would end up, basically changing the landscape of Canada as we know it.
1: So, Suzanne, what is the logic that Canada uses to ignore the law? Is it an economic argument that without the pipelines, workers will suffer and the economy will not be as strong as it would with the pipeline? Or is it, as Lindsay was suggesting, that uh, this kind of uh, Indigenous activity, these uh, protests, this organizing, it could be even an existential threat to Canada?
3: Yeah, I think it's all of those. And I think, you know, we have to recognize that The current legal landscape that we're in, corporations have more rights than people, than water. Um, Canada is also in free trade agreements, which means that its own water sovereignty um, is undermined by that. So the whole structure around it needs to be questioned, like you said, an existential crisis. Um, And just as Lindsay said, like Canada is so good at PR, at sort of... um, showing that the strength of the economy is dependent on the tar sands, for example, when tar sands are, you know, economically unviable, many multinationals and um, financial institutions are pulling out of the tar sands. However, Canada is locked into this idea of uh, independent, um, conflict-free oil. So I think that's part of um, why it's been really important to do this work internationally to break down that identity of Canada. Um, Because, you know, Canada takes in so many refugees and and does so many good things for the planet. However, most extractivism that's happening globally that's linked to um, indigenous missing murdered um, activists, it's coming from this government. So it's it's really a question like Canadians need to have an existential crisis. They need to do their own accounting. Um, they need to look at what Trudeau is peddling to them. And they also need to look at their responsibility to the international climate agreements. Um, you know, this is fracked gas that is coming from um, this pipeline that's proposed. It's, it's tar sands. It's some of the most polluting um, oils out there. So definitely Canada needs to have um, a, an existential crisis. And when we look at indigenous resistance, um, we can't just say it's, it's protesting, like, say, Extinction Rebellion or something. These, this isn't protests. These are you know, people standing up for their human rights, their basic rights as well.
1: Writer and activist Suzanne yeah. Dallywall is author Hi. of the Red Ar- Red Pepper article All Eyes on Wet'suwet'en In which she collaborated with Lindsay Basigal. She is the communications director for Indigenous Climate Action Which you can find out more about at indigenousclimateaction.com Suzanne is a climate justice creative And the founder and director of UK Tar Sands Network You can find out more about that organization By going to know-tar-sands.org Uh, Let's get back to... Let's start with you, uh, Suzanne. Uh, You uh, point out in this collaborative writing, Despite reoccupation of territory and the Supreme Court ruling, construction has been allowed to move forward with investments accepted. Violent police interventions have awakened the global community to the ongoing colonial violence perpetrated by the Canadian government and the oil and gas economy. So, Suzanne... Is that police violence the only way this kind of construction can happen? Can these pipelines, whether it's with uh, these uh, actions by the Wet'suwet'en or anywhere in the world, can these actions only be imposed through violent force?
3: Yeah, I think it's important to understand the different ways that this structural violence takes place. Um, And it's in a context of, you know, Putting it, uh, creating an economy where indigenous um, communities are economic hostages to either work in the industry um, or, you know, have to defend their lands in this way. So there's many ways that the violence happens, um, as Lindsay mentioned about, you know, not respecting indigenous rights, not ex- um, respecting access to water, to food. Um, that's another way that this violence happens. Um, so, you know, when, when it escalates to the point where it's the RCMP going in and um, arresting people and violently removing people, that's just the violence that we see on the front. There's all the violence that we don't see. Um, and also, this is the fact that this violence is happening at the hands of the Canadian government and the extractive industries globally. Um, and, you know, that doesn't reach the press, that doesn't happen in this way. And these projects have to have policing, they have to have security forces, um, in order to continue to go ahead. Um, and as, as we mentioned, it, it's, it's increased the violence with COVID. Now, you know, it's not just um, violent acts or sexual abuse, just the fact that workers are not respecting, um, you know, physical boundaries, masking or stopping construction. So there's many ways that um, it's not just the violence we see there, but structural violence,
1: And I want to get back to that idea of why this is all happening during a pandemic in just a moment. But first, Lindsay, uh, the two of you point out in the article in November 2018, TransCanada applied for a court injunction to gain access to traditional Unistotan territory to begin construction on the coastal gas link pipeline that would transport fracked gas to the Pacific coast. The CGL pipeline is part of LNG Canada, a fracked gas processing facility run by five companies of which Royal Dutch Shell is a 40% owner. Investors in the pipeline include HSBC, Credit Suisse, Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and J.P. Morgan. Lindsay, what can those who support the Wet'suwet'en cause do to assist in that opposition to the pipeline? Is the kind of consumer action of uh, activism of boycotting Shell gas stations or taking all my money out of Credit Suisse and Barclays. I don't have any money in Credit Suisse, Barclays, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, or HSBC. But what can people do to help the cause who are here in the states, south of the border?
2: Yeah, so there's actually an online action. So that's what we kind of mentioned before, where um, with all the shutting down basically by Facebook of, of different organizations that are working against CGL, um, So there's an upcoming action that had to be rescheduled because of the Facebook ban that happened um, to shut down KKR. So it's just an online day of action. So it's not anything in person, um, not anything where, you know, asking people to take to the streets or anything like that. Um, Online day of action on Monday, September 28th. Um, And so if anyone is interested, uh, you can go to the Rising Tide North America Facebook page. They are kind of updating the information on there. And there's just different ways that you can participate. So uh, kind of like there's, there's a tweet storm that's going to be happening. So, you know, tweeting at, at KKR um, about getting them to pull out of uh, CGL and then also some call scripts that are available and some email scripts as well. So just an online action that's a way for a bunch of people to be able to participate regardless of where you're located.
1: So, uh, Suzanne, let's get back to that idea of why this is happening during the pandemic. You write that with some authorities rolling back environmental protections, action is being thwarted by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. For example, in response to the crisis, provincial governments in Alberta and Ontario have relaxed environmental legislation. This has caused further alarm regarding the government's ability to protect citizens from the immediate devastation caused by extraction projects and raise new doubts about the long-term vision to protect our air, water and climate. What's the logic behind relaxing environmental legislation during a pandemic? What's the argument Canada Canada is making in doing so? What are, I mean, this isn't just happening in Canada. This is happening in the United States and all over the world. What's the logic behind relaxing environmental regulations during a pandemic?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of the drive to increase economic activity um, just dialed up. So, you know, there's this idea that because we're on lockdown, because we're not consuming um, as many products, um, we also don't have as much demand for oil and gas. It's one of the first times in history we've actually seen a decline um, in oil and gas. Um, we've seen actually the price of oil has gone up because now we're, um, oil companies have to actually store gas, which makes it um you know, the price of oil has gone up, in fact. So what's happened is that um, these companies are putting pressure to move forward with projects because they're losing money. Um, You know, every time a project is stopped, if that's through um, a community resistance, through the call for an environmental assessment, the companies lose money. Um, And that's why we've seen all this pressure now, um, you know, basically not respecting the WHO's guidelines. Um, And it's, as you said, it's happening internationally. We've seen this in Brazil. Um, the government there is using the lockdown um, as an opportunity to go and land grab, to um, continue to increase violence against indigenous folks who are protecting um, the territories. It's happening in India as well. So all of the situations that we've been facing with, you know, um, you know, stripping environmental legislation, all of those um, situations have just intensified with the pandemic. And now they're happening more and away from um, the media light, because we're all busy talking about the pandemic.
1: (laughs) Lindsay, in the Red Pepper article, it states the legal fight to stop illegal projects threatening the future of local communities and the global climate is being led by indigenous peoples in Canada and internationally. Yet, as you probably, I'm sure, very well aware, Lindsay, when we see protests in the media, the protesters are predominantly white, especially when it comes to environmental action. What do we miss in our understanding of the fight against climate change or climate change generally when we do not recognize the indigenous role in that fight?
2: Yeah, it's interesting in terms of media representations of what the environmental fight looks like and who it is that's leading that environmental fight because it does tend to be primarily white folks who are represented So there's that in many cases, environmental movements, work that's being done on the ground, on the front lines is being led by not only Indigenous folks, but also just Black and people of color in general. Um, So BIPOC folks all over tend to be the folks that are really leading things on the ground because so many of our communities are on the front lines. We are the ones being affected because of environmental racism, because of anti-Indigenous racism, because of threats to indigenous sovereignty, et cetera. Uh, so because we are the ones who are on the the front lines, really this is in many cases kind of a life or death situation for us. Hence why so many folks in BIPOC communities are the ones that are, are leading the charge, so to speak. Um, but unfortunately there is definitely this media bias towards more of a, almost like a, a safer way of thinking about climate change and fighting for the environment. So Oftentimes, it's very much kind of based on individualized actions. So what is it that you can do to help the environment by, you know, reduce, reuse, and recycle and things like that? And oftentimes, um, there's less of this analysis of this big systems change that needs to happen. And thinking of, you know, how are the big corporations like Amazon and all of these extraction industry actors and insurance corporations They're the ones that are really contributing to climate change. So we need to have more analysis of these big systems changes that need to happen, not just this very individualized notion of what it is that folks on a very small scale as individuals can do.
1: Suzanne, in the article, it also states it is crucial that while practicing social distancing, we find ways to keep the eyes of the world on what is happening in Wet'suwet'en territory with online activism and continuous application of pressure on the banks and corporations that have invested in the project. The Coastal Gas Link uh, TransCanada TC Energy Construction is ongoing in Indigenous territories, despite British Columbia declaring a state of emergency, bringing with it transient workers whose lack of social distancing Endangers communities And again, as Lindsay was saying earlier The Rising Tide North America page On Facebook You can find the online activism you can To support the Wet'suwet'en action By going to that space So Suzanne, how bad is Continuing extractivist industries Even increasing them When it comes to the potential for spreading the virus And exacerbating the pandemic Within indigenous Wet'suwet'en territory How, How much of a danger Is this to the public health of the Wet'suwet'en people?
3: Yeah, well, you know, when the pandemic started, there's literally been footage online of, um, you know, folks asking for workers to leave and them not respecting that call. Um, So, that you know, that just means that people aren't going to hear no. So we need to make sure that, you know, we continue to increase the voices of those who are on the front line for their safety. Um, And we also need to be, Um, Canadians need to be putting pressure on Canada to halt construction. And one of the best ways to do that is, as Lindsay mentioned, is to just keep putting these issues in the press and keep talking about um, what is happening there, elevate those voices. And it's a real threat, as we as Lindsay mentioned as well, um, as well as the threat to um, indigenous communities. It's about the interaction with migrant workers. Many of those migrant workers don't have access to healthcare. They're often on temporary permits. Um, so we don't know if there's testing happening um, or if any of the um, basic regulations around masks and distancing are being held up. You know, and corporations like Shell and the Dutch government certainly um, can, you know, went straight back to construction at the very beginning of the pandemic. So that's why we have to um, stand beside those who are calling for autonomy to be able to um, restrict uh, workers coming onto their land until we, we move out of this.
1: One last question for each of you. We have been speaking with writer and activist Suzanne Dollywall, who was in collaboration with Lindsay Basigal, communications director for Indigenous Climate Action, on the Red Pepper article "All Eyes on Wet'suweten." And as was mentioned earlier, you can show your support for the cause by going to the Rising Tide North America Facebook page, finding the online actions for Rising Tide North America. One last question for each of you, and our final question that we. Do for each and every one of our guests We call it the question from hell The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer Or our audience might hate your response Let's start with you, Lindsay Aren't you lucky? You write, it is Essential that indigenous models of economy In relation to responsibility to our Relatives, human and non-human Are at the center of our Vision of understanding our relationship With nature. What do you believe Is the b- biggest obstacle, Lindsay To everybody Embracing that vision?
2: I think that Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous peoples not being respected um, and voices not being uplifted and amplified is a huge issue within this arena around getting more folks basically to be on board with Indigenous folks uh, leading with the solutions to climate change and the climate crisis. Uh, I think that in many cases that there can be Um, A lot of folks who have very specific ideas as to how it is that we go about solving the climate crisis. Um, And there can be differences of opinion, of course, but at the end of the day, it it is Indigenous peoples that um, are the caretakers of the land um, and have been for millennia. One thing that oftentimes happens in the environmental movement that can be yeah. based on uh, people do, you know, do interviews, do sessions with their with their organization, with their staff, whoever, uh, do webinars, all of these different things. And there's not really any reciprocity. So very extractive. And many of those bases must also be very triggering in terms of people not um Recognizing Indigenous peoples saying things that are potentially triggering that are maybe anti Indigenous and they don't know, they just don't understand. So I think that there's definitely a need for people to just educate themselves more in general in terms of Indigenous peoples and the fights that we're continuing to have to fight and have been fighting since colonialism began. What are the resources that I have? whether that doesn't have to be financial resources per se that even means connections that even means media uh what are things that i can do in order to elect this to the forefront
1: And, uh, Suzanne, my question from hell for you is, uh, you write that we will need to revitalize local economies and dig deep to rediscover our traditional and ancestral knowledge alongside coordinated global research. We can no longer continue with a capitalist paradigm that sees communities as collateral damage in order to prop up a dysfunctional economy at the cost of life itself. Suzanne, does that anti-capitalism have a detrimental effect on indigenous activism is canada opposed to this activism because indigenous are anti-capitalist
3: uh yeah well uh, just to clarify i'm british indian and i work in allyship with indigenous communities and for me i don't think it's um as straightforward as being anti-capitalist i think it's you know we are trying to build futures for our communities um, and build relationship between um, global communities Um, and that means that we have to take a step back and look at in the current setup who is getting all of the um, benefits of that and also what are the violences that are happening in order to achieve that so i think sometimes this idea that if we're challenging the um, the violence the illegalities of the current capitalist system that we're not trying to live a good life and that couldn't be farther from the truth we still want to um, have jobs have work and have um, ways of being but what is essential is that we look at how in the current setup um, capitalism means that you know human rights are trumped um, that The corporations and banks are allowed to undermine the climate negotiations that are on the table. So it's really more about looking at capitalism as it operates um, and rethinking the economy, especially with COVID. We've realized that our economy is not shockproof and we need to, you know, rethink tourism, rethink oil as demand goes down for it. Um, So I think that's that's something that's like, you know, the '90s aesthetic of anti-capitalist activism. Um, a lot of us are challenging capitalism, but we're not necessarily, um, you know, we're still imagining futures and technologies and, and traditional ecological knowledge connect with renewable energies. Um, so I think it's more about shifting the paradigm um, and and looking at the the true cost of what is behind our economy at the moment.
1: I cannot thank the two of you enough for being on our show. Despite all of our technical difficulties, I've really enjoyed our conversation. We have been speaking with Suzanne Dollywall and Lindsay Bassigal, who collaborated on the Red Pepper article, All Eyes on Wetsu Sue thank you so much for being on our show. This is an incredibly important issue, and it's something we'll be wanting to return to. And I might be bugging you both in the near future to having you back on the show. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
3: Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you as well.
1: Thank you very much. Live from lands, sadly stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. This week's question from hell is, what can I say to get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you in this cult today? Alex, do you have more answers to this week's question from hell?
0: Okay, what can I say to put you in this cult today? Austin RM says, minimal investment for maximum and eternal reward. <laughs> Jeffy D says we're an open carry cult Oh nice Daniel SL says cult I thought you said cult and I really need a crappy 1970s <laughs> economy car I think Chuck got to that <laughs> terrible I think Chuck might have got to that terrible joke joke earlier here. yeah uh, what can I say to put you in this cult today uh, Tyler R says oh, Tyler boobies 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 I know right <laughs> Tyler uh, Ronaldo M says this cult what cult Ronaldo, the cult that I'm talking about (laughs) is the person who's trying to get you in the cult. Uh, Chris L says, oh, no, we aren't all bitter, blind, broken, gap tooth. Come on, it's always warm here. Chris A says, one free Wesley Willis compilation with every membership. Mm -hmm. Adam M says, we're looking for new board operators. (laughs) That's a good one. Eric T says, warm coffee provided uh, via DM, email, blah, 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 all that stuff. Neil C says, all bottles of Kool-Aid are kept six feet apart. Yeah, I like that one. Laughing Crow says, an LSD Bible, a couple of LSD stamps. And an AR-15. That reminds me, I need to get some LSD. uh, Yeah, I'm talking about that after the show. (laughs) Adam B. says, free trip to Guyana. Sadly, it's a one-way trip and what's going on there. <laughs> Hypocrite Reader, our friends at Hypocrite Reader, say, same great flavor as the original Jesus, but now with half the calories. You should look up what's going on in Guyana right now. It's pretty crazy. All right, I will. Uh, Cosmo says, excuse me. Hi there, fella. I was wondering if you like jazz. Oh, you do? Well, is that, uh, well, that is nice. We're holding a small jazz gig on Thursday. The address is on this pamphlet. If you enjoy this, maybe you would like our Friday reading group circle, and we are reading Heart and Negri Empire this month. See you Thursday. Proudhon be with you. <laughs> Okay. Andy says, Abracadabra. <laughs> flying Peanut, or Flying, oh, Flying Peanut, Flying Needle says, You are a peanut. <laughs> I don't understand that one. Uh, Tenny L says, My favorite one, no dues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Dan T says, Rum, Sodomy in the Lash isn't just a killer album. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> <Uy>. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, that's it. All right.
1: Uh, if you still have your, if you still have an answer that you want to send us uh, for this week's question mail, and still have a shot at winning the new gray on black, this is Hell Trucker's Cap. Just Facebook. Just send it to us via Facebook Messenger. Tweet it to us, or email it to us. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Do you have Hefe on the line? One, two. Thank God. You know what to do. That.
4: Don't judge me just because I'm psychotic. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. According to GolfAdvisor.com, where all important golf news is posted and updated in a timely fashion, the National Golf Foundation estimates a 6% increase in golfage this year. If you took the percentage of the U.S. population that identifies as LGBTQ+, and doubled that percentage, you would still not have added as high a percentage of lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, and plus size people to the U.S. population as the percentage increase in golfage this year, estimated by the National Golf Foundation. That is a long-twisted, meaningless way of saying that one percentage estimation is bigger than another totally unrelated percentage estimation. By the way, I know that the plus in LGBTQ plus doesn't mean plus size. I'm psychotic, not stupid. But what does the I mean that I see there sometimes? Incontinent? Undecided starts with a U. There's no I in team, people. And we're supposed to all be in this together, even if we can't actually be together. What's with all the golf, weirdos? I'm sure it's beautiful to get out there except here in California and anywhere nearby where the smoke is trying its best to replace breathable air. But everywhere else, it's bucolic, idyllic. You go up and down little hills, a slave or some kind of al fresco butler, carrying your precision weed whackers in a big fancy sack. Bryson DeChambeau won the U.S. Open two days ago. Finally, a white guy won a golf tournament. Bryson bulked up an extra 40 pounds for the event. He needed the muscle to lift his precision clubs, I suppose. He's a very technical golfer. He uses meteorological and topographical measuring instruments before making his shots. He measures the air density. He consults computer models to understand the shape of gravity peculiar to each putting green. It takes him forever to play 18 holes. He's not psychotic. Our horrid, lumpy president... A certain Mr. Donald Q. Dump plays golf, which proves definitively that golf is not a sport. Oh, did I mention I'm psychotic? I'm a victim of solo lockdown psychosis. It's the hot new psychosis no one's talking about and no one's doing anything about except fooling themselves that they're not suffering from it, even though they've probably never heard of it. (gasps) Shh. Quiet. I think I just smelled something I want to eat. Never mind. It was just an olfactory hallucination. It was just the remembered fragrance of a tuna salad sandwich. I have zero ingredients for even the most rudimentary version of such a sandwich. No tuna, no mayo, no bread. I want to talk for a moment about anarchists. We're all very upset here in California that none of our cities have been condemned by the ultramental wing of the fascist authorities as an anarchist jurisdiction. Everyone's cracking themselves up over the phrase Anarchist jurisdictions, but anarchists have jurisdiction over many places. In fact, all jurisdictions are anarchist jurisdictions. Anarchy is the law of the world. There are always constraints on the choices people are able to make, but people make the choices they think are best, given the limits within which their actions are circumscribed. It just happens that the constraints the vast majority of people are under were placed on them by tyrants, imperialists, and... You're all too frequent overweening narcissists. In fact, Donald Q. Dump and Bill Joliet Jake Barr are a couple of examples of people whose choices tend by design to put vexing restraints on the choices others are able to make. If Barr and Dump are really concerned about anarchist jurisdictions, they should really examine their own behavior. They need to be nicer. They should organize their group endeavors Along lines of mutual aid, affinity, and the greater good, instead of greed, pettiness, intimidation, frivolous lawsuits, lies, fear, hollow values, and tubs of trans fat. A lot of people calling themselves anarchists have some good traits. They have motivation, a sense of honor. They can be well-read. Some of them roast coffee, organize clandestine trade schools, communal repair workshops. They can make puppets, juggle, ride unicycles, grow community gardens, do tattoos, tolerate and accommodate an ungodly amount of piercings. A handful of good anarchists are well worth dozens of Bill Barrs, Donald Dumps, and Stephen Millers. The world can hardly support the number of those pigs we already have. We really need to thin that herd. In my opinion, a golf course is the perfect place for a sniper to set up such a project. Excuse me. That was my psychotic side talking. I understand we're all being driven a little bit nuts those of us taking precautions to avoid catching or spreading the rona. I feel for you who have a group bubble to maintain, especially if you have young kids in that bubble, kids or honky-tonk folk. They're the same kind of trouble. They just want to go out, see the lights of town. They can't be tamed. They cry and hug you and tell you they love you when they're ashamed. They repeat the same stories over and over again, and they get into fights at the slightest provocation. I don't envy you. It's hard enough to raise children or live with a honky-talker, but during a pandemic, under modified lockdown conditions, it's just gotta be hell. But at least you've got someone to bounce stuff off of, you know, bring the focus outside of your head, away from studying the windmills of your mind, interact, be in the world. We who live alone, we don't have that. We have virtual relationships. We have distanced small group events some of us don't even have family to talk to now and then. Some of us haven't worn pants for weeks. In Japan, they have a name for people like this, Hikikomori. I strongly suggest viewing the Takeshi Miike film Ichi the Killer as a kind of cautionary tale. Also, it's just great. A Chicago literary colleague, at some point, sent me a manuscript. It stated, March 17, 2020... And it talks about her depression and how the COVID-19 lockdown was going to exacerbate it because the one way she has of dealing with depression is by going out and about and being with people. And she ended this piece of writing by telling a friend, only partially joking, that if she was going to get through this thing, she would need to stay blackout drunk all the time. From my own experience, I'm pretty sure that's impossible. But that might just be me. It's worth a try. I should check in with her and find out how it's going. Back to golf. What is a golf course but a kind of grassland? Imagine it's like the savannah. You're a lion, and you're looking for the weakest wildebeest, except it's a golf course, and you're looking for the most pompous pieces of crap. And let's have none of this showy spectacle, big splashy massacres. That comes later. You want to liquidate your targets sedately, deliberately, then move to another position, get another group in your sights, eliminate those targets, and then go. Get away from the scene. Live to operate another day. We're psychotic, not stupid. Let that be our mantra and our credo. I can't promise people won't judge you. Actually, I can promise people will judge you. Everyone's so judgmental these days. They'll call you all kinds of names, make assumptions. It'll be infuriating. That anarchist Donald Dump will definitely call you an anarchist. If you're a Maoist or a Trotskyite, tell them they got it wrong. Correct them on doctrine. But also tell them you are inspired by the Unabomber. It'll confuse their narrative. And come on, all of us psychotics were a little bit inspired by the Unabomber, weren't we? I'm... Until he wrote that rave review of himself in the New York Times. Talk about a high-functioning hikikomori, though, right? Anyway, everyone has their own way of enduring a crisis. Let he who is without a peccadillo cast the first stone. It's peccadillos everywhere you look. It's a regular peccadillo circus. You know who can juggle peccadillos? An anarchist. On a unicycle. This has been the moment of truth.
1: did you see the suspect in the ricin envelope that was sent to president trump uh, that they've caught this person uh they they caught the suspect and one of the ways in which they caught them was on social media they'd been sharing the hashtag kill trump
4: (laughs) wow (laughs) you know i i totally would have ignored that just just been like uh, they can't pop that. That's absurd.
1: <laughs> well, the thing that gets me about it is that there is a hashtag. OK, so did this person create the hashtag kill Trump? Did they see the hashtag kill Trump already being used by a whole bunch of other people?
4: <laughs> well, Chuck, let me tell you something. I'm, I think I think uh, we're psychotic, not stupid is probably not a good credo anymore. <laughs> I didn't think it would wear out so quick. Oh, let me tell you something else. Chuck. <laughs> don't don't use birch beer. Why? It, because it'll make whatever you're cooking taste like wintergreen certs. Oh, damn it. So
1: you think I should just look for a sugar root beer?
4: You can Cane find sugar, sugar root, root beers. beers. There are always sugar root beers. Okay. Um, A&W used to have an only sugar version. If you go to like a, a liquor store that has a lot of root beers, might find one.
1: All right, no cherry whipped beer then. Maybe they—they they really wanted me to use cherry cola, and I thought that that just sounded disgusting.
4: Maybe regular cola. Yeah, I'd have to have you a, know can... Mexican Coke. Yeah, Mexican
1: Coke—that's a good one. You're right. All right, Jeffy. What this conversation Stay psychotic? is psychotic. <laughs> Stay beautiful.
4: All right, you too. <laughs>
1: Capitalism is a virus, and this is hell. This week's question, from Mel, is: What can I say to get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you in this cult today? The person with our favorite answer wins the new gray on black. This is hell. Trucker's cap. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question, from Mel? Uh, not at. We got all of them. All right, and this week's winner is. I gotta say, it's gotta be Jeff or Josh because of that. A uh, question from mahala answered that I read earlier uh, Josh wrote uh, What do I have to say to get you in this cult today He said you have to join one of two cults And the other cult is full of racist, sexist, transphobic, fascists That want to rape you, gun you down in the street Cage your children, leave you starving with no medical care Destroy nature and generally strip away your civil liberties Or you have to join one of two cults And the other cult is full of pedophile terrorists Who want to steal your money, control what you think and say Teach your children to hate themselves, leave you jobless And generally take away your civil liberties What are you going to do? It's a two-cult system. So, Josh, congratulations. You have won the new Grand Black This Is Hell Truckers cap, which everyone can get right now at thisishell.com. When they click on support, all you have to do, Josh, is send us your mailing address via Facebook or email, and we will get you your cap immediately. My answer to this week's question from hell, what can I say to get you in this cult today, is all you have to say to me is it's really easy. If you join, we'll give you $10 million without any strings attached, including joining our cult. Thanks, to everyone, for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Alex, who will be on Monday's show?
0: Uh, working out the specific person, uh, but it's probably going to be someone from ICIJ. That's the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Talk about their giant, big investigation, the FinCEN files.
1: Oh, that's going to be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, it reminds me of the Panama Papers coverage that we did, and I think it was with some of the people from ICIJ, wasn't was, it? Uh, the Mike Hudson. I- yeah, 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 yeah. the
0: lead of ICIJ. Uh, What about Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Anything else for next week? Oh, yeah. Uh, Tuesday, Fabian Scheidler will be on to talk about the debut of the English language translation of his big German book, The End of the Mega Machine, a brief history of a failing civilization. (laughs) Ah, sweet. (laughs) Uh, Then on Wednesday, we're going to have Nick Dearden on to talk about his writing on uh, the UK-US trade deal and what that means for everyone in the UK. Okay. And then uh, finally on Thursday at 2 p.m. again, because it's another West Coast person flexing there. I don't want to get up out of Ben early muscles. Uh, William I. Robinson is going to be back on the show to talk about his book, The Global Police State. And I'm really, really excited for that one.
1: And we always ask our listeners to send us guest suggestions. And- Both Alex and I are getting a little tired of all the white dudes we've had on recently. So please send us more guest suggestions of people who aren't white dudes. We start every week's live streaming shows here at ThisIsHell.com with Alex revealing the week's hangover cure, and this week's is cheesy fried rice, which sounds disgusting to me, but Alex is very interested in finding out more about cheesy fried rice. Thanks to all of this week's guests, including co-director and senior analyst at the Afghan Analyst Network, Kate Clark, who posted the article at the AAN website, War in Afghanistan in 2020, just as much violence, but no one wants to talk about it, which you can find at Afghanistan hyphen analysts.org Afghanistan analysts.org and I apparently repeatedly gave out the wrong address on Monday's show so that's afghanistananalysts.org and it's definitely worth visiting their site and reading Kate's work because there is still a war going on in Afghanistan even though the media doesn't want to talk about it uh, also thanks to uh, researcher and writer Christian Sorensen author of Understanding the War Industry you can find out more about Christian at LBL LRI. God damn it. I forgot. Anyway, it's uh, it's IBP. Yes. I ibpoffices.com. dot com. which is another web address I repeated inaccurately during Tuesday's show. And I'm getting it wrong again. So I apologize. But that was a great conversation. And one of the things that we didn't get to with Christian is the reason that the United States goes to war. And it's because they go to war because profit. Which is scary Thanks to yesterday's guest Senior environmental reporter Abram Lustgarten Who is the author of the article Climate Change Will Force A New American Migration Which is the result of a partnership Between ProPublica And the New York Times Magazine And finally thanks to today's guest Writer and activist Suzanne Daliwal And Lindsay Basagal Communications Director For Indigenous Climate Action You can find their article In which they collaborated on all eyes on Wetsuwet'en at Red Pepper. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing maybe an interview we did with William T. Volman, because I swear we interviewed him once, and Jason wanted us to get William on the show, so there's that. And I'll be really annoyed by election signs as I search for what their true meaning is. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. I know you had struggles today, but none of it was your fault. It was all the fault of the Internet, so I blame the Internet. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for delivering the moment of truth. Thanks to Suzanne and Lindsay for being our guests on the today's show. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, going to the rising tide North America social media sites so you can show your support for the Wet'suwet'en people, and then saying the simple words,
4: Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh-huh.
2: And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell right.